Good morning, church. I am uh, grateful to be with you this morning, grateful that you are here uh, as well. And if you're a guest, again, just want to express how grateful we are to you for being with us today. We pray that you'll be encouraged through our time in worship to God today. I want to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, Matthew 28 is where we're going to be together in just a moment. Uh, We are in the midst of a seven-week sermon series on the Bible. We're talking about the Bible and and uh, one of the things that you know about the Bible is that it is a complex book. It has a lot of a lot of words and a lot of ways to understand it. And so we're trying to kind of unpack that over these seven weeks in this series to talk about what is the Bible and how does it, how you know how does it come together to form our lives to point us to Christ. And we've been talking about that over the last few weeks. We have this week and then two more weeks after today in this series. And, uh, and I want to just say quickly that if you've missed a sermon in this series, I want to encourage you, if you can, uh, to go and on our website or if you're uh, tech-savvy enough to use the podcast app or a Google Play app or something like that on your phone, you can find our, our sermons on that. Because I was thinking about this week that this series, maybe more than any other series that I have ever preached, series of sermons I've ever preached, really are connected to each other. So if you're a guest today and you walk in and you hear me say something about the Bible that you know is maybe shocking to you, something that I have said in the previous weeks will inform what I say today. And so it's important, really important that you go and you uh, maybe listen to those. Uh, if you need help be falling to sleep at night, that's a great way to do that. Uh, if you have a long drive or, a, you know, something, you, can, you, might, you might think about that. But I want to encourage you to do that because I really believe that what we're talking about is, is incredibly important um, as we talk about the Bible and what, it, what does it do and how does it function in our lives. And it's, it's a complex book. It's a really a library of books, and that's what, part of what we've been talking about, why this, this stage uh, stuff is up here with these books of the Bible, like you might have seen in a children's Sunday school class when you were a little kid, Right? This is, I think, how we need to think about the Bible. It's a library of books, ancient books, written by a lot of different authors and written in different languages. And here we are finding it in our leather-bound, printed form for us, or maybe a digital form if you're looking at it on your phone this morning. And, and, and we don't always think about how it arrived to us. And so it's really important, uh, that I think, that we think about that. And so I want to I jump in, really, and not do a lot of catch-up about where we have been Uh, And this morning we're going to talk about the authority of the Bible uh, and what it means to live out your part of the story as you understand it, as you read Scripture. So before we do that, let's, let's pray together. Father, we come this morning grateful for our time together. We proclaim again, as we've just sung, that you are good. You're so good to us. And even in the highs of life, Uh, and the waves of life that come. You are our anchor. You are the wind in our sails. Uh, And we are grateful today, God, to to have a chance to gather to just proclaim that again together. We pray that you will be highly exalted through our time, both in worship, around your table, and as we study your word together this morning. We love you, and we're grateful for Christ and, and the way that he is at work in us and in the world. And we pray in his name this morning. And the church said, Amen. So one of my, my biggest takeaways from this series personally is, is this, that the expectations that we bring to the Bible 
as we come to it to read, will have a huge influence on how we read and what we're specifically what we draw from the Bible when we read. Our expectations of the Bible, when we approach it to read it, to interact with it, will shape what we draw from it as we read. Now, there's a couple of different kinds of expectations, and some of you have heard me talk about uh, what I, the term that I, I, the idea that I refer to as kind of our lenses, uh, and I'm not really referring to that as much, so much this morning. I'm really talking about a different kind of expectation. Uh, our lenses might be, if you've never heard me talk about that, that, you know, for example, I am, I'll speak for myself, I am a white, middle-class American male. Those are all things that I, uh, that are a part of who I am, uh, that are not, don't make me better or worse than anybody else, but they're a reality for me. And they shape how I read the Bible. You may or may not have ever thought about the fact that who you are actually impacts how you read Scripture. But the reality is it does. Because if you, if you dropped, if someone dropped you or I, you know, in another point in history, and we were a different person, and we had the Bible, and, we came, and it, you know, it came to us as, it, as we have it now, we would read it through our, the, the lens of our surroundings and our personalities and, you know, the things that are, that are a part of our background. So that's one way of thinking about it, but I'm not really talking about that this morning. So I don't want, if you've heard me talk about that kind of before, I don't want you to be thinking along those lines. When I'm thinking about expectations, uh, I'm talking about something else, and I'll kind of unpack that here as we go. But the expectations we bring to the Bible will always influence how we read and what conclusions we draw as we read. And the reality is that some of the, some, for some of us, some of the difficulties we as modern people living in the time and history when we live, uh, have, is that we, we read these ancient words in the Bible, right? And, and it's not because we have too little faith or that our hearts are hard. We come to the Bible and we, we expect something of it that the Bible wasn't intended to do. We have expectations of it that, that, that it can't really live up to because it wasn't intended to do those things. So, for example, the Bible... I think, was never intended to be a science book or a history textbook. Uh, the Bible was never intended to be an owner's manual or a how-to handbook for raising kids or having a successful marriage. Um, and, and you can find a lot of things that talk about the Bible in those ways, and maybe, uh, maybe it's been that for some of us. Certainly it has been for me at certain points. But if you think about, just as an example, when I was preaching through the book of Ephesians earlier this year, this summer, really leading right up to the beginning of the school year, we, we came to Ephesians 5. Uh, Ephesians 5 talks about families and parents and children and marriages and all of those things. And I, and I mentioned then, really, that of all the places in this entire library of books, Ephesians 5 is one of the handful of places that specifically direct, directly you know, addresses, there's some teaching specifically about uh, parenting or about families and about how to function in a Christian home, right? And so if you go to the Bible looking for specifically for that certain thing, you will find a limited handful of verses or passages to draw from. And so someone might think to themselves, well, maybe the Bible doesn't care about marriage. Not that any of you think that, right? Or care about families. We know that that's not true because of some of the conclusions that we draw about principles that are in Scripture, but the Bible wasn't intended to function as a book that tells you how to have a perfect marriage. We understand what I'm saying? So if we come to the Bible expecting us to tell us everything about one of any, of any topics, the, I think the reality is that people could be disappointed. 
because it doesn't do that. It does perfectly, as I have said, it perfectly points us to Jesus. That is the point that I want you to get from this series, and so I'll keep saying it. The Bible perfectly points us to Jesus, and Jesus' teachings become the way that we understand how to live out our relationships, both in our homes, in our workplaces, in our marriages, in our friendships, how we interact with our enemies and with our neighbors. The teachings of Jesus are the thing that shapes that for us as his followers in our time and in our place. And so the Bible, the Bible also was never intended to be a blueprint, right, of, of, of church. And we, we, if in our tradition, we talk a lot about kind of restoring the first century church and the reality is we do a lot of things in 2018 that I think if a first century Christian walked through the door, they would have their mind blown by, right? Even the fact that you're in this room, and Randy prayed for it as we talked about collecting our offering a minute ago, right? And grateful for this space. I am grateful for this space. But, you know, we have to recognize the reality of sitting in spaces like this are a direct, direct result of Constantine, the emperor of Rome, becoming a Christian and wanting, you know, all of a sudden it went from one, from one day from Christianity being illegal to Christianity being legal because he now was a Christian, right? And so all of a sudden these churches started getting built all over Europe. And so we see today, like, this is a reality that we know and enjoy, but it's not, it wasn't the reality for the first century. This would have been very foreign to them to have a space like this to gather and to worship. So we didn't get this idea as an example, I'm just using this one. There's lots of examples. We didn't get this idea from the Bible. Build buildings, right? Have air conditioning. Use microphones. Like, those are not things that we got from the Bible. But we understand that Scripture is not speaking out against those. So we don't go to Scripture as a way to go, okay, how exactly are we going to do things in 2018? There's certainly some of that, but it's not the case across the board. The expectations we bring to the Bible will always influence how we read and what conclusions we draw. And one of the reasons uh, that many of us bring different expectations to the Bible is because we believe the Bible to be authoritative. And so I want to talk about the authority of the Bible this morning. Authority is one of those words that uh, almost always comes up when people are talking about the Bible. And uh, authority isn't something that everybody likes, quite honestly, unless you're the one that has the authority, right? Nobody likes really being told what to do unless you're the one doing the telling. But the reality is we as followers of Jesus know that we sit under uh, the authority of Christ. And so what exactly does it mean to say specifically that the Bible has authority? What does it mean to live under the authority of the Bible? And, and those are fascinating questions, I think, especially in light of the world that we live in uh, that is increasingly suspicious, quite honestly, of, or, and honestly sometimes outright dismissive of anything or anyone that, that kind of claims authority in any way. And so today I want to share with you a way of thinking about the Bible's authority that has been helpful to me as we think about what it means to live under the authority of the Bible in our modern world. Uh, and it begins, I think, with a clarification. And this will be the part that shocks you if you, if you don't hear, if you just tune me out after I say it, so hear me all the way through on this point. When talking about the Bible's authority, it is important to remember that the Bible never claims ultimate authority for itself. That might sound, again, might sound shocking initially, but it's true. And, and we see this, and what we see is the Bible actually pointing away from itself and toward God, who is the ultimate authority. The Bible claims that God is the ultimate authority. God's authority resides in, not in a collection of ancient books, but in the risen Christ. 
And this may be, again, a way of thinking about authority that maybe you've not considered before. And, and, but I would say, maybe the question you would ask, Doug, how do you know this? Well, then you're going to love this. The Bible tells me so. So let's look at Matthew chapter 28 together. Matthew chapter 28, a, a very familiar passage to most of us. And I'm going to begin in verse 16. Matthew writes, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus has died, has been raised from the dead, and now the risen Christ says to his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so the question is, who gave it to him? God the Father gave it to him. God is exercising in Christ his authority, God's authority, through the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't say, all, notice, Jesus doesn't say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the books that you're going to write after I go back to heaven and that you're going to collect into one volume so that people can read and digest and understand this story moving forward, right? He says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, to him, to Christ. And then Jesus delegates some of that authority to his disciples who he commissions to go out and to baptize and to make more disciples, to teach people about the ways that, in the ways that he has taught them during his time on earth. Which I assume, and this is where it's kind of connected to last week's sermon, I assume when Jesus says that, if you, think, if you were here last week, and I talked about reading the Old Testament through the lens of love, and I went to, to great detail to show you about how I think Jesus does that. I think whenever Jesus says, teaching them, to obey everything I have commanded you, I think that part of what he means by that is teach them this new and improved interpretation of the Old Testament law viewed through the lens of love that I taught and modeled for you while I was here on earth. By Jesus' authority, through the power of the Holy Spirit, his disciples are going to continue to expand the kingdom of God and what, what Jesus begins in his ministry. And one of the artifacts that they that they leave for us, leave behind, is a collection of writings. And some of these writings highlight the stories of Jesus. We call those the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And some of these writings tell the story of the early Christian movement, expansion of that Christian movement throughout the Roman Empire right under the nose of the Roman rulers, right? As churches start popping up in Rome and in Corinth and in Thessalonica and Ephesus and all of these cities, these major significant cities of the time, these, these letters, these, these writings tell us the story of that expansion of the gospel. And we kind of process a lot of those letters and look at what happened to the church in Ephesus or the church in Galatia, and we, and, we, and we want to try to understand that so that we can help know how to live in our time, and I think that's proper and good. But what we have to also understand that that letter was really communicating is, man, look, look at how the story of Jesus is continuing to unfold across this empire, even at the resistance of the Roman Empire in many ways. 
And we call that collection of writings the New Testament. And what happened was the early church, you know this, of course, but the early church preserved these writings. They collected these writings. They shared these writings with each other because they found these writings to be helpful and useful and essential for them as they followed Jesus. What's really interesting, that again, we don't think about it in great detail because we're, we're, we're Christians, but especially for early Jews, they're, as they're wrestling with how to understand the Old Testament scriptures and what God had been doing in Israel's history, now through the lens of what Jesus has done, right? As the New Testament, what we know of as the New Testament began to be collected and, and assumed, you know, called Scripture, what happened was early Christians began to call these New Testament writings Scripture, which really for some people would have been like blasphemous because, you know, you don't, nothing is held in higher esteem than the, the law and the Old Testament prophets. And all of a sudden these Christians, right, they, they start writing these letters and telling these stories that we record and that have been recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and they begin holding those stories up as equal with the Old Testament Scripture and calling them Scripture. Why did they do that? Because through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they believed that these New Testament scriptures were helpful in living the life that Christ wanted them to live in a way that these scriptures were incapable of doing, quite honestly. They found the 27 books of the New Testament to be authoritative, in other words, an authority over their life that they had previously not known. And so I want you to visualize the Bible's authority like this. It's, it's basically what I've just described. But that God has ultimate authority and that he gave that authority to Jesus. And Jesus said that in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me. But now I'm going to commission you, these early followers, to go and to make more disciples, to continue to teach people about how to read their Bibles and about how to follow me in a way that honors God. And that some of those, some of that authority then was imparted to the writings of the earliest disciples, what the disciples left behind, we might say, right? a way for the story to continue to be told throughout time. The scripture, like the apostles, though, in this kind of chart here, I think have been delegated authority to do what they were commissioned to do, which is, and stop me if you've heard this one before, because it's what we've talked about the previous two Sundays in this sermon series, lead us to Jesus and teach us and train us to be more like him. Like that, that is what the scriptures are intended to do. Lead us to Jesus and to teach us and train us to be more like him. And for me, the question isn't how do I feel about submitting to the authority of the Bible, honestly. That's not the question that I personally think about. The question is how do I feel about submitting to the authority of the risen Christ? I think if we get those out of order, then we've maybe missed a point. How do we submit to the authority of the risen Christ? And here's why this is important, church. Because we know the Bible says certain things. I have a preacher friend of mine that was, and I was an early youth minister, and he was the preacher at the church where I worked. Uh, he would jokingly, or maybe not so jokingly, refer to these passages that we read, but we just kind of ignore as like Passover scriptures. If we don't like it, we just kind of pass right over it, you know? And the reason that it's important that we understand and not get out of order the fact that, that authority ultimately is owned and claimed by Christ, the risen Christ, first and foremost, and that we not put 
those two things out. Because what happens is, if I read in the Bible that I'm supposed to forgive someone 70 times 7, and Scripture has this authority and Jesus has authority here, right? Then what will happen is, I'll live my life and never forgive someone. But if I believe that the risen Christ has greater authority than the words that I read, what I, what I, I read those words and I think, I want to honor the risen Christ. And because I want to honor the risen Christ, I want to forgive as I have been asked and commanded to forgive by my Lord and Savior and Messiah. And what will happen, I think, is, again, if we get those out of order, is that we can live life knowing what the Scriptures say and continuing to just disregard them because we don't really like that Scripture or we, won't, we, don't, we, just, we don't really want to talk about that or whatever it is, right? And I'm using forgiveness as a small component of, of an example that, we could spend hours talking about just that, just the ways we do that, dance around certain scriptures. And if you say to someone, well, Jesus wants you to do that, we go, well, yeah, I know, you know, and that's not going to make it easy necessarily, but, but the authority that Christ has over our lives, that's what baptism is, is that we've, we gave up our life and we were raised to walk with Christ. And we said to Jesus, I am yours, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And that's a different way of thinking about following Jesus than, than I think many of us were invited into when we first followed Jesus. But it's not too late to really do it the way that Jesus intended to do it. The risen Christ has to have ultimate authority. Even if we give a thumbs up to this idea, right, of living under the authority of Christ, exercised through the scriptures, it, it still doesn't answer the question, though, of, of what is living under the authority of a library of ancient books looks like. And it certainly doesn't look like reading the Bible. We don't, we know, sometimes, on the, on the one hand, we read the Bible and there are some things we ignore. On the other hand, we read the Bible and there are some things that we understand those things aren't directive, you know, ex, you know, specifically to me. We don't do all the things that the Bible says. I think it's a romantic notion, especially when the world has gone mad and when something goes wrong in church, when people say, well, we just need to read the Bible. We just need to read the Bible. And I think there's a step there between reading it and doing it uh, that cannot be avoided. And that's interpretation. What am I reading as, I, as I'm reading it? And what is it saying, right? There's a lot of commands in the Bible that we don't obey because we understand that, that, that they weren't specifically for us, right? Women don't cover their heads when we pray anymore, for example. Uh, and there's also a lot of a great uh, example, uh, examples in Scripture we don't do a a great job of imitating. Another, another one I thought about is fasting. I mean, I've never preached on fasting, you know, but Scripture's there, and we're like, well, just don't talk about fasting, Doug, because we like to keep eating as much as we want to eat, you know, or whatever, right? It's there, but it's not really, it's clearly the early disciples did it, but we don't talk about it much. And so that's an example that we see. Why is that? Because, again, the Bible doesn't exercise its authority like a rule book or a how-to manual or a blueprint or a constitution, there are parts of the Bible that do read like a rule book. Leviticus, anyone? Right? There are parts of the Bible that do read like a how-to manual. Letters to, to the church in Corinth, for example, where there's lots of problems. But that is a much smaller section of the larger library. And the Bible as a whole doesn't do that. But living, what we see, though, is that if you look back through this, through this library of books, what we see throughout the story is an unfolding story with a beginning and a middle and an end and we get to be a part of that story and living under the authority of a story is different than living under the authority of a rule book or a law book or a constitution 
We don't live under the authority of a constitution as Christians because our Bible doesn't function in that way. As American citizens, we do, and that's a different conversation. We come under the story's authority as we enter the story and let that story shape how we live. So some of you maybe have heard me give this example before, but maybe some of you remember C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. They made a movie about this book years ago. And in this story, Lucy and Edmund, along with their cousin, used to stare at this picture in the beginning of the story on the wall of a Narnian. And it's this, this is a picture from the movie or an image from the movie. They're staring at this picture, and it's a Narnian ship on the wall in this picture. And as they're staring, about, staring at this picture, Lucy says to Edmund, I think the picture, the painting is moving. And all of a sudden, the ship begins to move, and the waves begin to roll. And before they know it, the water comes out into the room, right? And, and they're drawn into this story. They're drawn into this painting, and they find themselves, as the, wa- as the room fills with water, and they go under the water. When they come up, they're in Narnia. And they're helped into a boat called the Dawn Treader. These, these kids, now this are, you know, the story, they're living in this story that they had been hearing about and reading about. And they go to distant lands looking for the seven lost lords of Narnia, and their adventures end when they find a lamb that turns into Aslan the lion. And for me, this is just one example of, of a way to think about the adventure of the Bible. And I, I want to say this is the kind of adventure with the Bible that I am looking for and that I want you to be looking for. The adventure of staring at the words on the, on the pages of the Bible, only to find ourselves the longer that we sit with these words, as we get to know the risen Christ, that we're finding ourselves drawn into the story itself. And we can feel the story, and we can taste the story, we can imagine it, we can hear this story, so that it renews us in a way that other things we read do not. What I want for us is for the words to jump off the page and into our lives so that they give us courage to begin living the life that God intends for us to live in a new way. Or maybe another image would be more helpful. N.T. Wright writes about this one, and he says, Imagine that we're part of a theater troupe. In a lost script, there's been a a story, a play that's been written, a five-act play. And we discover it, this group of us, we discover this play that has been written. It's a five-act play, and it's been written by Shakespeare. And nobody's ever performed this play. And so we start passing out the parts around the room, and each of us has a role to play in the story. And we read through the script, and as we're working through it and talking through it out loud, and we're getting ready for our rehearsal to ready to perform this play, we discover that Shakespeare wrote the first few scenes of the Act 5 of this play, but then he stopped. He wrote Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4, and then he only wrote the beginning of Act 5, and the rest is blank. There's nothing on the pages of Act 5. But let's say we really like this story as the Kaufman Church of Christ theater troupe, and we decide we're going to keep acting it out. And so we want to tell this story of Shakespeare, but in telling the first four-plus acts, first four and part of the fifth act, We want to perform it, but how would you know if you had a play with a script that hadn't been completed, how would you know how to finish the story? Well, what you would do is you would look back on the beginnings of that story, and you would see what does this character do, and what is their temperament like, and who, how do they speak, and how do they act, and how do they function, and how is their story unfolding, and and then you would 
notice that about all kinds of people. Where are the moves in this story? And, and how are people behaving and acting and speaking to one another? And, and then you would, understanding all of that, you would step over into this fifth act and you would, you would live out that part of the story. You would perform that part of the story in a way that was consistent with the first four and a half acts of the story. You would immerse yourself in that story. You'd ask, where does this story seem to be going? And having immersed yourself in the story, what would happen is you and I would stand here and as we perform this play, and we're performing the final act without, for which we have no words, no script, right? No one's saying, say this and do this. Exactly. In every situation, you'd have to kind of figure it out. You would do that, and the way you would do that is after you had immersed yourself in the story, you would improvise scene after scene after scene until the story was, had reached its end. And I want to I suggest this morning that that is a picture for us as we think about our place in the story of God. And I don't want you to be thrown off by the word improvise. Improvise doesn't mean that you get to do whatever you want or make stuff up out of the blue. Improvise means that you act your part of the scene in a way that is faithful to what has already happened in the story. To faithfully improvise a scene, we must submit to the authority of the larger story of which our scene is a part. And that means that we live under the authority of that story. And to me, that's what it means to live under the authority of a biblical story. You become part of the story to the point that you, are, you know this beginning, these beginning parts of the story, which is really all of this, right? You know the beginnings of this story well enough that you can improvise and live out your part of the story as those stories come out of you. We can break the story of the Bible down into five acts, and I want you to think about it this way. Creation, the first two chapters, God says are good, and he creates the world. And very quickly at the, there in chapter 3, things go south, the fall, things are spoiled. And then really that just lasts through Genesis chapter 11. And the beginning, the rest of the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12 through Malachi, is the story of God coming to Abraham and beginning to make some promises to Abraham. And all throughout this Old Testament story, we see these promises that are made. But the reality is, and I referenced this a few weeks ago, when you get to the end of the Old Testament, the promises that were made have not been fulfilled yet. And so Jesus arrives on the scene and people begin to realize that the promises have now been kept and fulfilled in Christ. And this unexpected this unexpected turn in the story, quite honestly. The Israelites thought God would answer their promises and keep his promises back in number th the, the third scene. And then there was this long period of silence, quite honestly, where things weren't being answered and developed. And then Jesus arrives on the scene, and this turn in the story takes place that absolutely boggles their mind. That's why you see over and over the disciples, they can't get their mind around the fact that Jesus is going to die. How could that possibly do anything to accomplish the promises being kept. But Jesus does. And we see the story find its meaning in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Who not a, not only, Christ not only shows us how to read and interpret the first three acts, but he also sets the trajectory for the fifth act. And we'll talk more about trajectory next week. And then in Act 5, the church acts through Revelation, this new creation, this new humanity, this new community. And this story that begins to unfold as new people come to find out about Jesus and the word gets passed from city to city. 
and people continue to tell about the good news about Jesus Christ. But the reality is the New Testament does not tell the whole story. The Christian story continues beyond the New Testament. I believe that the writers of the New Testament believed this with all their heart. I, I think that they all thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. That's my opinion. But I think they would have also believed that it, even if he didn't, that the story would have continued long after anything that they wrote. They wrote it so that the story could continue to move forward. And so the question for us is, where are we in this story? And I would suggest that we are living in the fifth act of an unfished, finished story. And to keep the story moving forward, we have to keep improvising scenes and keep doing our part without a script to follow entirely, right? Not every relationship that you have or difficulty that you have or struggle that you have, is there going to be always an example where you can go, okay, here's how I can approach this specific thing in my life and I got this book, chapter, and verse. Now, there will always be principles and encouragement and words to spur us on in the journey, but there's not always going to be a blueprint. We have to use wisdom. This is one of the reasons I believe that Jesus said, and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, by the way. I'm not leaving you, he says in Matthew 28. I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. What does he mean? He means, I'm going to go, he says in John, I'm going to go so that I can send the Spirit. It's better for you if I go, because if I don't go, I can't send the Spirit. And the Spirit will help you live out your part in the fifth act of this unfinished story. And in case you aren't yet convinced this morning, I want you to think about the ways you're already doing this. You're already improvising this story. You're already doing this with your life right now because you've learned and you're learning and I'm learning and I've learned how to be a follower of Christ in 2018 in America right now. Like the Bible never, never says... Okay, in 2018, this is how you're going to be a Christian in, in, you know, Kaufman County, America in 2018, right? The Bible doesn't give us a word of instruction about specifically how to do that, and yet we understand there are principles and ideas and truths that we can draw from to inform how we do that. You're improvising, another example is that you're improvising when it comes to being a person of significant financial means, in 2018 and a follower of Jesus because quite honestly the Bible in the earliest stages of scripture you see people that are poor are the earliest followers of Jesus right they're they're so poor they're having to share their possessions with each other because some people don't have enough of some things and they need to give to others so that nobody has any basic needs that are not met the Bible you hold in your hand or in your you know on your phone is a story of peasants and fishermen and women who sold fabric and carpenters and tent makers, not people with a ton of money, right? And to help us improvise our parts, we use their stories to inform how we live, but you're already making decisions about this as just two examples. And so this kind of in closing is one of the reasons it is so important to study the scriptures. It is not because you're going to have a final exam on Judgment Day, I don't believe. Some of you have heard me say before that I believe that when we get to heaven and we stand before God, I have a, a teacher of mine who years ago, I'm stealing this idea from him, you know, if it's a test, at the end of judgment, we're all going to fail, right? So his answer, which has become my answer, which I will pass on to you if you've never heard me say this, is when we stand before God, I'm going to say, this is my friend Jesus and he can explain everything. That's the test that we need to be able to pass. 
What was our relationship with Christ like? Was the risen Christ, did he have ultimate authority over our lives in such a way that he influenced who we are and who are we, who are we becoming? I think it, it's possible for a group of actors to do this. And when we look over history, we see uh, a lot of 2,000 years of church history, and sometimes things look really really dark, honestly, in Christian history. Christians doing things in the name of God that now I think we would go, well, that doesn't seem anything like what Jesus would do. But every time, right, every time there seems to be a dip, God always raises up a generation of people to continue the story forward so that his words to his disciples, the gates of hell will not overcome this kingdom that I am building, will still be true 2,000 years later. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom you or I know of that still exists 2,000 years after it was started. It's never been accomplished before by humans, and it will never be accomplished because it's not possible outside of Christ. So this is a helpful way for me to think about what it means to live under the authority of the Bible. We don't, and we don't live our lives as, as though we're innocent or oblivious uh, to the disastrous consequences of evil set loose in our world. But we don't live in Act 1, right? We are a long way from Eden. Eden happened, and it was a significant part of the story, but it's not our part of the story. It's a story that we're connected to, but we're not there. We're not in Act 1. And our goal isn't to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem where we can offer animal sacrifices on an altar because we don't live in Act 3. And maybe we don't... Sell our, sell our possessions and give our money to the poor entirely because we're not, you know, literally follow, and literally follow Jesus around ancient Greece like Jesus told the rich man to do, ancient Galilee, rather, because we're not living in Act 4. And we don't spend our time trying to figure out how to get Jewish and Gentile Christians to eat at the same table or worrying about meat sacrificed to idols or trying to restore what the church looked like in the first century Roman Empire because we don't live in the early scenes of Act 5. Those were their scenes, and they were their lines, and it was their story. And we live in a different time, in a different place, facing very different problems and wrestling with very different issues, and it's our turn to improvise a scene in the ongoing Christian story by trying to figure out, with the help of the Holy Spirit, what it looks like to live out the good news of Jesus Christ right here and right now. And your life is telling a story. And that's the question that I want you to think about as we close. If you believe that your life is telling a story and that generations to come will read your story, they may not read it specifically, but they will hear, right? You, if you're a part of a church, you know this. We talk about things that used to happen in church. In a, in, in a positive way, we certainly have things that you know used to ha- maybe happen in the past that were negative or discouraging too. But there will be people telling the story of this community of Christians long after you and I are we're long gone from this place. And so, if you if you believe your life is telling a story, what story is your life telling? And my hope and my prayer this morning is that we will know the Christian story told in the Scriptures so well that we're able to live out our new scenes in a way that is faithful to the larger Christian story that's already been told to which we belong and that when generations after us come and study the scenes of our lives and prepare to live out their own life, 
that they will see Christ in us because we have faithfully followed him. And so may the words that we say, may the choices that we make, may the positions that we take and stand firm on, may the lives that we live as followers of Christ cause those people who will read our, our lines, our script later on, say, that looks like Jesus Christ. That is what Christianity is supposed to look like. Those people at Kaufman Church of Christ in 2018 and beyond, and they were, they were, they were pointing their hearts and lives toward Christ. And more importantly than the people that will read our story, may the author of our story, the perfecter of our faith, when he returns and examines our work, may he look at the scenes we've improvised and say of our lives, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning grateful that we are caught up in this grand story that you've been telling for thousands of years. Since the creation of the world that you set forth this plan to be with people. You love us and you care for us and we're so grateful for that. We're grateful that you sent Christ to fulfill the promises that you set out long ago. We're grateful that you've given us the Holy Spirit to encourage us and to spur us on as we live out the scenes of our lives today. And we pray, God, this morning for wisdom and for guidance as we live out this story, that you'll give us hearts that are committed to do what you want, no matter the cost, to go where you want us to go and to be who you want us to be and to change what you need us to change so that you can use our lives and tell the best story possible in every way. God, I'm grateful for this church, and I'm grateful for the ways that you've been using this body for a long, long time to tell your story in this place. And I pray that you'll continue to stir up in us and to use us in increasing ways to impact our community and the communities around us and that our lives will reflect the glory of Christ so that others will look at us and know that we follow you. Our heart's desire, God, is to hear you say those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we pray that you'll give us courage on the journey and confidence in your word to help us as we walk this road. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ this morning. And the church said, this morning we always want to provide an opportunity for people to respond in whatever way you may need to respond. And so if you need to do that, I'll be down front. There'll be an elder in the back. You may want to find someone around you and pray with them. However you need to respond to God, let's do that as we sing this next song together. I am weak, but you are strong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk, O Lord, close to you. Through this world of toils and snares, if I falter, Lord, who cares? Who with me my burden shares? None but you, O Lord.
feet.